You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santis Health. Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Said, and I am a senior consultant here at Santis Health. Today, I am joined by an incredible panel of experts to discuss the impact COVID-19 has had on Ontarians' addiction and mental health, as well as explore some of the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead of policymakers as Ontario moves into recovery and beyond. Before we dive into anything, I want to introduce our guests. Adrian Spafford is the CEO of Addictions and Mental Health Ontario, a role she has held since October 2018. Adrian is well known in the healthcare sector for her commitment to quality and humanity in the delivery of care, nowhere more so than in the area of mental health and addiction. Uh, Camille Camville is the CEO of, of Canadian Mental Health Association Ontario Division. Before joining CMHA Ontario, Camille channeled her passion for mental health in senior leadership roles in the educational, governmental, and children's mental health sectors. And Kim Moran is the CEO of Children's Mental Health Ontario. Her passion for the role derives from her personal experiences with mental health services as the mother of a daughter who became seriously ill. In addition to her role as CEO, Kim is a member of the Premier's Council on Improving Healthcare and Ending Hallway Medicine. Due to current restrictions, we are not actually in the studio today. We are holding our conversation virtually. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Camille, I'm going to start off with you. Um, it has been a very difficult year on everyone. Uh, your staff are on the front lines and virtual front lines supporting Ontarians. What are you seeing? What, are you, what is the staff seeing? Well, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, And thank you for the invitation to participate in this podcast. I think what my colleagues across the province are seeing, frankly, is far more people and a greater demand on the system generally. In many of our programs, we've seen a 50% increase in demand for service and meeting those expectations has been challenging, I would say at a time that uh, we can all agree has been unprecedented in its challenges. We've also seen a number of areas of our organizations that have worked very hard to switch to a different delivery system in order to continue to meet demand. Most cases, that means a virtual service delivery. In some cases, it means continuing to see people in person, which requires a lot of support and guidance around Uh, the use of PPE, et cetera. And what I can tell you more than anything is that as I've witnessed this across the province, and we all have for the past 15 or so months, I couldn't be more proud of what this sector has accomplished in community care uh, for those struggling with their mental health or with an addiction in in that we have maintained 98% of our service delivery. So I think that in and of itself is extraordinary. And it speaks to the kind of people that we work with and their dedication. And it means that people who, frankly, have needed services that are outside of what we typically describe as mental health and addictions, including food security and other programs, continue to get what they needed to stay as healthy as they could through what was one of the toughest times in the history of our province. Thanks, Camille. It's really been incredible to see. I I mean, the number that you just cited, 98% of services that are being maintained is incredible. Uh, We're seeing that a lot of services have had to 
um, kind of scale down in a lot of way. And I think it's an incredible thing that the response from this sector um, that they're moving this, um, they're still delivering regardless of the, the gaps and the vulnerabilities that we already know exist in the system in Ontario. Um, next up, Adrian, I have a question about the opioid crisis. Um, we've recently read a report on opioid-related deaths in Ontario. It's showing that deaths are up by 75% before COVID-19. What does Ontario need to do around the opioid crisis specifically? It's, it's unconscionable right now. Yeah, it's a very, very important question and issue. Um, it's actually the, the recent report was a 79% increase between the same period before the pandemic and after the pandemic. Um, dealing with the overdose crisis and the drastic rise in overdose deaths was, was one of three priorities we had for the provincial government uh, in our annual budget submission. And just like COVID-19, we need um, sort of a whole of government uh, response to the overdose crisis. Uh, but we also know what could be put in place to start um, bending the curve of overdose deaths. So we are calling for the Ontario Emergency Task Force um, to be restruck and to work directly with people with lived experience, community service providers, clinicians, and other experts to develop a robust strategy, uh, recognizing that the over overdose crisis also extends beyond opioid drugs. Um, you know, we see data uh, from drug checking services that is just phenomenal in terms of um, what is actually in the substances people are using and how much that's changed over the course of the pandemic, which is leading uh, part of the reason behind the increase in overdose deaths. Um, we need more data. It, we, we need it to be collected uh, and released publicly so that we can make uh, decisions accordingly. For instance, one of the findings in last week's report was that there has been an increase in deaths um, in some geographies uh, in hotel spaces that have been put up temporarily um, uh, for people experiencing homelessness during COVID-19. So that is data that now that we know we can act on in terms of getting more harm reduction interventions into those ho uh, housing space, uh, into those hotel spaces. We need more consumption and treatment services uh, in regions of the province where the overdose rates are high. Uh, and we really do need to see substance use and addiction services along with concurrent disorder services as a full spectrum of care. You know, um, uh, people who use drugs and people with substance use disorder do not experience a straight line trajectory um, for people. Uh, they need supports that are able to um, to meet them where they're at, in their goals, uh, in their condition. Uh, and that means sometimes getting services uh, that are from harm reduction perspective, sometimes getting services from an absence-based perspective, um, sometimes just getting access to really high quality primary care um, and housing and income supports. And we need to make sure that that spectrum of services is connected for people uh, because this is a, a complex condition and it, it needs to be treated as such. Thanks, Adrian. And Kim, you're up next with, the, with our kids. Um, the saying usually goes that the kids are all right, but based on recent reports, the kids are not all right in Ontario. What do you think we need to do for them going forward? I think that's a 
particularly good question on the same day the premier announced the schools would not be reopening. So uh, no, the kids are not all right. I think we actually have a generation of kids at risk um, from the school closures, of course, the disruption that caused the loss of their regular routines, social isolation, um, family distress, the loss of important events and milestones. These are all um, impact, impact kids' mental health in such profound ways. And what our researchers are telling us right now is that kids are really suffering. So two-thirds of youth surveyed report that their mental health has become worse. 60% of parents report behavioral changes, outbursts, extreme irritability, drastic changes in mood, sleep difficulties. They're all seeing that with their kids. We know that, of course, youth from low-income families, northern and remote communities, Black, Indigenous, and racialized youth, youth with uh, developmental disabilities like ASD have other barriers, and they're doing worse. We also know that kids who had pre-existing mental health issues are doing generally worse than the other kids. So, you know, all the statistics here are showing a problem is coming. We know that our primary care doctors are reporting a huge increase in kids uh, coming with mental health issues. And we know that our hospitals are seeing um, have stead, seen a steady incline. Now, the numbers of kids going to hospital for mental health issues have been bad for the last decade. Uh, there's continuing that trend of being bad. And there's a, a, a spike in kids with eating disorders. And we're not sure why. They're quite acutely ill. So the stats would say that, yes, our kids are not all right. What, what we have to do to prepare is to have, I would say, a system-wide response in health uh, spanning the whole children's mental health system from um, um, health promotion or well-being, um, mental health resiliency, all the way up to mild mental health issues, to the more severe mental health issues, to acute care in hospitals, and, and plan a system response uh, to what I would think is going to be an enormous increase in demand. We're seeing it, that increase in demand in different places right now, but I think it's going to get even more as things open up. And the government hasn't been successful in really planning a system-wide response yet. They've been making quite fragmented investments, quite fragmented policy um, decisions. And, you know, to be honest, we won't have the time um, or the health human resources to really mount a response unless it's a very joined up, integrated response. And so, you know, we are encouraging the government to think about um, it as a system a system from that includes where kids are, which is at schools, through our, our primary care physicians, to community mental health care, and to hospitals to think about it in a different way than they have before, and to have joined up system responses. Thanks, Kim. I, I think the, the piece around integration, the entire system working together is, is specifically very important. But one of the questions that I asked Adrian about a year ago was, how are all mental health associations and organizations um, in the province working together um, to kind of advance some of the priorities together. And, and that's a question that I'd like to pause, pause again at and, and ask, um, what are you all doing together? There's a, we see a lot of advocacy. Tell people how you're all working together. It's, it's been tremendous to see the journey of, of these organizations working and, and those, um, those press releases that are coming with um, multiple organizations, very big names in the mental health and addiction sector. How, tell us a little bit about, about your joint activities to kind of uh, move 
um, move the agenda forward on mental health and addiction? So we've always worked together. Um, since day one on, on the job for me, and I'm the newest of the three of us, um, this group of three and these organizations have been working together hand in hand. And there's a lot of different dynamics within the mental health and addiction sector um, and uh, that are important, that are really, really important. It's really important that we are building up community care. Uh, it's really important that we are improving transitions uh, across different settings of care. It's really important we're taking a lifespan approach. It's really important when we're talking about mental health that we're also talking about addiction and substance use. Um, and my view is that working together, we can be so much more powerful than any of us individually can be. And most recently, working together um, alongside a number of other partners, we launched a public awareness campaign called Everything is Not Okay. Um, that the message for that campaign was that we were in a system of crisis. We were a system of, in crisis before COVID-19. COVID-19 has only exacerbated um, our wait lists and the complexity of people who need access to high quality services. Uh, and we need to work together with government and together among ourselves to be there for people who need mental health and addiction supports and services. Um, and we feel that working together We've really been able to get the attention of government, to get the attention of political government, to get the attention of officials in government and the civil service, as well as to work in partnership with Ontario Health, who's going to have a huge road ahead of it to be successful on a big part of this government's agenda around mental health and addiction, which is the Center of Excellence for Mental Health and Addiction um, that uh, speaks to um, taking a more provincial program type approach to mental health and addiction like we've seen in renal care or cancer care previously. Um, but they're only going to, we know they're only going to be successful in, in that if they are engaging with individuals at the front line of services and organizations like our associations who uh, have, a, have a really good understanding of what's going on with our members on the ground. And um, I'll always say that I think united, we can be much stronger than any one of us are individually. I think, I think Adrian articulated that very well. I, I don't have a lot to add because I think the, the piece that, that particularly sticks out for me in terms of what she said is certainly the strength in numbers, the ability for government to see that we are aligned, that we are speaking with one voice. I think that's critically important. And frankly, the community piece, because I think our advocacy goes beyond mental health and addictions issues some days, not, not often, but some days, to really focus on the type of care we provide and where we provide it in community and the value of that. I often say that if we're doing our job well, the vast majority of our clients never see the doors of a hospital, and that's to everyone's benefit. Uh, they want to be treated in community. It is the most efficient place for them to be treated, and uh, if we have the capacity and can do our job well, that's how that journey should be, and should they need it because they become acutely ill, we're there when they get out. But one of the areas that I'm, I'm 
particularly proud of is our ability to act on each other's behalf as well. So Kim's organization had an issue very recently, uh, SILAP Center, which I'll leave to her to explain that we all took on in our own way to say, this isn't right. What's happening in the child and youth sector isn't right. And even though it wasn't my member and it wasn't Adrian's member, we felt as strongly as Kim did and did all we could to help um, get some resources together to assist her so she can give you the details on that. Well, thank you. I mean, I think, Camille, you're right. You demonstrated exactly um, the benefits of partnership with that. The, um, in this case, Children's Services as, and Children's Mental Health Services, as I said, is quite fragmented. So there's uh, mental health treatment being provided in pockets across the government. Um, in this case, it's in the youth justice system. So uh, kids who have um, have entered the youth justice system often, more often than not have mental health issues. In fact, they have a higher than average rate of mental health issues. And about 25% of them have very serious mental health issues. And uh, at March 1st, the Ministry of Children and Community Services announced that they were closing a secure treatment uh, facility for those kids in the youth justice system. And there was nothing to replace it. And, uh, and we spoke out very quickly about that because we felt that it wasn't equitable for those kids, that there was a demonstrated need the uh, program had been full for many years, and it really was n- nonsensical that uh, they would close it without having any replacement of services as well. And, and to have our partners speak out as well um, was very important because, again, it reflects the lifespan. If these kids don't get treatment in the youth justice system, when we have a window, we have, a, we have them. We, we've got them in our system right now. If we don't treat them now, they're going to end up in... Um, justice systems and healthcare systems for the rest of their lives. So that goes to the nature of mental illness being a lifespan issue. About uh, 70% of adults who have mental health issues report that they had mental health issues when they were a child. So um, treating kids early, uh, this is a very good example. It's also an example of sort of this fragmented response to mental health issues. And I think uh, we see that fragmentation in the adult system as well. And I think that's where this group coming together, the, the, of my two partners here, uh, very much helps that. So where government, um, you know, has to organize itself in different ways. Uh, way we, right now we have Ministry of Health and Ministry of Children Community Services. They have to, they have to also, we have to act as a bridge, as a, as, as a bit of a silo buster, I would say, because, you know, um, uh, the different ministries, it's, it's always tough. It's a big challenge in government to work across ministries. And I think that we can add that different intelligence. Um, you know, in, in the children's system, uh, mental health is, is but part of a children's service system. And we try and do that kind of connection there as well. So we have uh, partners in the pediatric health world. We have partners in the autism world, partners in the developmental services world. And those partnerships help decrease uh, the natural tendency of government to work inside. So I think that adds a very positive contribution to public policy that that uh, our group can bring. Honestly, it's it's really inspiring to hear um, the things that, that you're working on and some of the work that you're doing collectively. It's It really feels like um, we really need strong advocates um, for mental health and injections in the system. And it's really inspiring to hear the stories that you have and the work that you're doing around that. So thank you on behalf of me and other Ontarians that need those services. So I want to ask 
and and this is a little bit maybe putting you on the spot by by asking you to pick one single thing that you think is going to be most impactful um, in terms of recovery. So after after COVID, what do you think is the most impactful change in Ontario on a, on a policy level to make sure that we are supporting people with mental health and addictions? Camille, do you want to go first? I'm I'm happy to go first. Thank you. Our strategic plan is going to be released very soon. And we have a strong focus in our plan on the quality of the system. And I know that for most people who are in need of service right now, that might seem a little bit odd, but we fundamentally believe that, frankly, the system needs time and attention as it relates to the infrastructure of of how we do business. And we have been a poor cousin to the physical health system for far too long. And as a result, we haven't kept up on very unsexy things like data collection and quality improvement measures and performance measures. And I fundamentally believe that that's a gift to all of us if we can improve the quality of the system, because it essentially is going to mean more and better and consistent care for generations to come. And so it needs to be embedded into the infrastructure and it is a priority of our organization, and, and uh, we work in partnership uh, with AMHO on this as, as it relates to our particular quality program. But I think it's more than just the actual effort of quality improvement in branches. It's also excellence in governance and ensuring board volunteers have the skills they need to do their job well. And it means that across the organization, in every aspect, that we are striving to have the very best level of care and highest quality care and all that we do. I would say that, um, you know, that quality initiative is extremely important. And I think that um, that's how you really get effective um, value for the dollars that government is investing in services by delivering higher quality. And I think that we all have to make sure that that is the case. I think that from um, policy perspective, I think that if our, uh, our government partners can be thoughtful about the long-ranging impact of mental health issues in terms of prioritization within uh, the plans, I think that would be really important. So, you know, surgical backlog is going to be something that is um, going to be very uh, important and typically is in the government. Um, I think that understanding that mental health and addictions and the impact of that on the whole population, making that a, a an equal priority, is going to be something that uh, I would want our policymakers be very thoughtful about. And and I, I would be remiss in not doing my job if I didn't say children. So um, you know I think that the stressors on our children are enormous. And that we need some focused policy. Um, And I would say across mental health and learning and uh, other more general health issues uh, would be really important right now. Uh, Because these, you know, government has to take a longer term strategy on these kids. These are the kids who are going to be our leaders. These are the kids who are going to pay for our CPP if we want to get real personal. Um, We've got to make sure that these kids are healthy. And I think that having joined up policy response around kids is a very good uh, long-term policy decision. I think the single most impactful change Ontario could do to support the mental health of all Ontarians would be to put um, an equity, anti-racism, diversity, and inclusion mandate 
central to the work that they're doing to uh, build up mental health and addiction services for all Ontarians. We know, like anywhere else in healthcare, that Indigenous peoples and Black peoples and people of colour have disproportionately poor outcomes uh, relative to the white population. And we have a chance here to um, build on the success of community organizations like the ones uh, many, all of us represent, some of which are real leaders. Uh, and I've been doing this work for a long time. Like I've got a member named Across uh, Boundaries, for instance, or um, Pujabi Community Services, uh, Hong Fook. They've been doing this service, this type of work for a long time, and we need to bring in that equity lens, I think, a lot more broadly uh, across the system as a whole. And I suspect many of the people who are involved in earlier days in improving cancer outcomes and renal outcomes would agree with me um, if I said they would have done a better job if they'd put equity and anti-racism uh, more preeminently within the strategy because outcomes were improved through that work, but not equitably. And I'd really like to see us doing that in mental health and addiction. We have historically had behaviors um, associated with the conditions that our members um, serve clientele with the, uh, that are criminalized uh, by the justice system, behaviors related to serious and persistent mental illness, behaviors related to substance use. And that means that Indigenous peoples and Black peoples have been overwhelmingly harmed by that criminalization. And there's so much work that needs to be done and should be put front and center on unearthing that racism that exists within our sector um, to be able to improve outcomes for all Ontarians. Because if we start there, it's going to benefit us all. Well, I wonder if I might just tag on to what Adrienne said. I completely agree with her and, and, and that absolutely is a priority and that work would be embedded in the kind of data collection and quality improvement measures I was referencing earlier. I just want to put some numbers to what she just said because I think this speaks to so much of, of our current system state. So three in 10 people with mental illness have had police in their care pathway. One in 20 police dispatches or encounters involve people with mental health problems. One in seven referrals to emergency psychiatric inpatient services involve the police. Two in five arrested in their lifetime have a mental health issue. Uh, those numbers don't need to be. There's no reason that that that's the case. And these are current numbers. So it just speaks to a number of things, people having an inability to access the type of services they need to get the kind of care they need and the care pathway they deserve if they are mentally ill. And I think we know we're talking largely about racialized people. And so I think given what we know, and as Adrian articulated, um, this is critical to the development of the system uh, in so many ways. And uh, so I will stop there and pass it over to my colleague, Kim. And just to add on to that, that notion in the children's system, there are a disproportionate number of children in the child welfare and youth justice systems. And that is because very often um, they are Black, Indigenous, and persons of color who are not accessing uh, mental health services equitably. And so as a result, as a result of their mental health issues, they're uh, uh, 
in the child welfare and youth justice systems. And that has to stop. Right? That just has to stop. And um, there is lots of systemic uh, issues why that's happening. But um, it, it, it's very uh, an important issue that we need to tackle head on. And why those kids uh, are not accessing uh, children's mental health systems the way that the uh, white population is, is something that must, must end. And, and we must sort that out. From the sounds of it, it sounds like we really do need a whole of government approach where ministries are talking to each other about this. It doesn't seem like with the vulnerabilities and gaps, not just in the healthcare system, but elsewhere in the system right now surfacing as a result of COVID, it really needs to be an approach where all ministries are working together towards a, a better coordinated system for people with mental health and addictions. Um, and it can't seem like your jobs are any getting any easier here. So I really want to thank you all so much for joining me and sharing your perspectives and, and for um, giving us some really treasured time. I know all of you um, have your kids and priorities and work and everything. Um, so I just want to thank you again. And I really hope that in a year from now, when we hopefully meet again, that um, the temperature check on the mental health and addiction sector is going to be a little bit, we're going to have a little bit of a better outlook there. Um, so thank you all and have a lovely Thank you, Veronica. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.